This is Church of the Resurrection in Wheaton, Illinois. If you like mur- or if you like mysteries like I do, this is one of the greatest mysteries of all time. If you love underdog stories like I do, improbable, unlikely. How in the world did they do that? Comeback stories. You're going to love this story. What am I talking about? I'm talking about this, the church. Not just this church, but the church. We underestimate how unlikely it was that this fragile Jesus movement survived and didn't get crushed by the powerful Roman Empire. First of all, this movement was small. About the time the New Testament was being written and the early books, especially the early books of the New Testament, it's estimated that there were 5,000 Christians scattered throughout the Roman Empire. A fraction of 1%. And not only was it a small movement, but it was also powerless. It was weak. It was fragile, at least on the outside. The Apostle Paul himself, writing to a glitzy, what we would consider like a a New York or an L.A. kind of like city in Corinth, and he told the Christian community there, he said, for consider your own calling, brothers and sisters. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. Actually, it was the opposite. You came from the lower classes or maybe the middle classes. Not only was it small, not only was it powerless, it was also a mocked and maligned and marginalized community. We have a record of one Roman politician, a man named Pliny the Younger, who called the Christian movement a wicked and perverse superstition. A philosopher named Celsus, about 170, complained that the Christians were drawing all of their people from what he called wall workers, cobblers, laundry workers, the dishonorable and the stupid. This is how the Roman elite, the intelligentsia, the people in power thought of the Christian movement. So it should have been crushed. It should have been stomped out, and yet it grew, and not only grew, but it thrived to the point where 300 years later there would be possibly three to five million believers in Jesus meeting in possibly an estimated 65,000 house churches because they still didn't own church buildings. One historian said it grew from small and obscure beginnings and brought tectonic shifts in cultural values. Not just a personal relationship with Jesus, but they influence culture. They influence cultural values. A, a modern philosopher, Luke Ferry, who's considered, he, was an, he, he is an atheist, he said this, and I quote, the Greek world was founded on slavery, but Christianity introduced the notion that men are equal in, dig- equal in dignity, an unprecedented idea at the time. How did they do it? That's the mystery. These underdogs. How did they do it? Well, first, let me just say that they were not perfect. You read any epistle in the, in the New Testament, and you will find an epistle, a letter, to sinners who are struggling to be sanctified. 
Every single one of them. They were not perfect, and yet, if they did it, I think they have something profound to say to us in our cultural moment, namely this, that the biggest threat to the church is not on the outside. It's always on the inside. And the greatest hope for the church is never on the outside. It's always on the inside of the church. So if there is a fire burning bright, blazing at the center of the church's life, the warmth will keep us alive and spread out to the world, give the world warmth. But if it's cold, there's no hope. Nothing can fix us. In this gospel passage, we see what captivated the early church, what caused them to believe, to risk, to give, to serve, and sometimes to be willing to die for their faith. Let me put it this way, really simple. I was trying to think of like, what, what is it in this passage, this gospel reading that you just heard that just exemplifies this? It's not the only place, but it's one of the places. What, what did they capture? What captivated them? And let me put it this way, really simply. They were dazzled by Jesus. And they dazzled the world with the love and power of Jesus because they were dazzled by Jesus. I like that word, dazzle. I was trying to think, what's the right word? And so I looked up dazzle, and the synonyms for dazzle are to be amazed, astonished, surprised, fascinated, swept off one's feet, to take one's breath away. I like that because, as our friend Bishop Todd Atkinson would say, the gospel is romantic. It's like a romance. It is like falling in love. And once you have your love rightly ordered, everything flows from that. So that's what we see in this gospel reading. And, and I want to ask you this morning, does are you dazzled by Jesus? Do you think the church is dazzling the culture that we're in right now? Let me ask this, do you want that? Do you desire that? Because the Lord's always asking, what do you want? What do you desire? Great saints of the church are saying that the Lord, he, he wants to appeal to our desires. What do you love? What do you want to pursue? So do you desire that, or do you, do, do you desire to desire that? Or maybe you desire to desire to desire that, etc. But do you want the Lord to help bring that desire in you? In this gospel passage that you just heard read, we see this chain reaction. Somebody's dazzled by Jesus. They invite somebody else to be dazzled by Jesus. So in this passage, we have Philip. It starts with Philip. Philip is dazzled by Jesus. He invites his friend Nathaniel. Nathaniel is dazzled by Jesus. And then at the end of this passage, Jesus says, you, the church, I want you to be dazzled by me so you dazzle the world. That's the flow of this passage. So, so let's look at this. Verse 43, it starts with Philip, this chain reaction. Verse 43 in your gospel, and I encourage you to read along with me in your Bible because we're just going to walk through this passage just 
just like little piece by little piece, and you're going to see both of these themes woven together. So Gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 43. The next day Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, follow me. Here's the thing I love about Philip. He is so ordinary. One Bible commentator said, whenever we see Philip in the, in the Gospels, he's always with his brother Andrew, and he's always in situations in which he is out of depth. And I, I love that. That's my kind of guy. I remember in the middle of one of my, in the middle of my pastoral journey, maybe about 15 years ago, I thought I was using some self-deprecating humor to gain some sympathy and maybe even some praise and flattery. So I told one of these, the older women in the church, I said, you know, Barbara, you know, half the time as a pastor, I don't know, even know what I'm doing. And she said, oh, Pastor Matt, we all know that. <laughs> it's not what you were supposed to say, you know. But we feel out of depth. And I love, I, I love Philip. He's an, he's an out-of-depth disciple. There's hope for us. So then verse 45, he's dazzled by Jesus. And verse 45 says he found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law, also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. So this is the continuation of the Jewish story. Moses wrote about this guy. The prophets wrote about this guy. He's from Nazareth. Well, Nathanael is not impressed with that. And he says in verse 46, first part of verse 46, Nathanael said to him, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Now, you have to catch the tone in that. It's just, it's dripping with disdain, contempt. Nathanael is not just a doubter, like we'll find Thomas later in the gospel. He's a skeptic. And he's, as, as heart, he's an elitist. Ha, <laughs> Nazareth, flyover country, Hicksville. What trash. Can anything good come out of there? Now, people are asking today, can anything good come out of the church? Can anything good come out of Christianity? Is it too tainted? Is it too tainted by a lust for political power? Is it too tainted by a desire for comfort and financial security? And I want to say, on the one hand, there is elitism out there. There is elitism. You know, when I was living in Long Island, I used to love reading. And I'm going to pick on, I'm going to mention some specific things here, so hope you don't mind. But I used to love reading the New York Times. Best journalism. Great journalism. I loved it. That was 15 years ago. I still get it on Fridays, Saturdays, and Sundays. And I still read it because it's amazing journalism. I love the journalism. I love the international news. But I got to be honest, the national news, sometimes it just drips with contempt and with disdain for half of the country. I just pick it up. Sometimes I just can't even, I can't even read it. Now, I know we find that on the other end of the spectrum, too, in certain news sources. 
It's like half the country is held in contempt and disdain. It's a spirit of elitism. And let me just say it's real and it's powerful in our culture. But let me also say that Christians should be the first ones to disavow themselves of this. Look at how Philip responds to this contempt, to this disdain, to this elitism. He doesn't argue. He doesn't get offended. He doesn't get defensive. He's such a good evangelist. He just simply says, come and see. He invites. It's so warm. But you know what's lacking there is any kind of defensiveness or spirit of offense. You know, the Bible says, a gentle answer turns away wrath. Jesus said, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. People of God, let us be the first to lay down the spirit of offense, the spirit of elitism. Let us be the first. There is no situation, no matter how bad things get in our political climate, there is no situation in which you can say, okay, that's it. I don't have to love my enemies anymore. They have crossed that line. There is no place. I don't think Jesus gave us a loophole to, love, to not love our enemies, to not pray for those who persecute us. Come and see. Let the church be the place that welcomes skeptics, that welcomes people who are hostile. If we don't do that, we will never dazzle the world with the gospel. Verse 47. Jesus sees Nathanael coming toward him, and I imagine it's like maybe he's coming towards him, like maybe with that big candle right in the middle there. There's like that far away. They've never met before. And Jesus calls out, and he says, Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. He's telling him, you know what, Nathaniel, you might be a skeptic, you might be an elitist, but you are just, you're honest. You just call it like you see it. You're, you're just, you're a person of integrity. You're genuine. And you're passionate about what you believe. And I think what Jesus is saying here is that I see that. And I am calling that forth. And I want to refine that. I want to get rid of the elitism in you, but I want to use that, just that, that inner truthfulness that you're not, you're not a phony. I like that about you. And Nathaniel says, how do you know me? Now, it could be, it could be, how do you know me? Or it could be, how do you know me? Hear the difference? Could be one of those. I'm not sure. Maybe it's both of them. I don't know. But Jesus responds, and he says, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Now, I've been trying to think about what this, this, this means, and I actually had this, this young guy come up to me after the service, and he said, that's one of my favorite verses in the Bible. And I said, wow, tell me about it. He says, I said, what do you think was going on there? He says, I think that that Nathaniel had like this, that, that was prophetic of Jesus, obviously, but I think Nathaniel maybe had this secret place 
where under the fig tree was the place where he wrestled with his deepest longings, his deepest aches, maybe his deepest sense of loneliness, maybe his deepest insecurities, that that's the place. And, and maybe he cried out to God in that place. Who knows? But Jesus saw him in that special place where nobody else knew about. I saw you under the fig tree. <gasps> what? How did you see me? And Jesus says, Jesus is basically saying, I knew you before I knew you. I saw you before I saw you. I'm God Almighty. I saw you, as Psalm 139 says, I saw you when you were being formed and shaped in your mother's womb. I've known you before I knew you, Nathaniel. And Nathaniel is dazzled. And he says in verse 49, Rabbi or teacher, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Now, again, when I read that passage the first time, I'm going, man, he crumbled really fast, just like a poof, like a house of cards. Like, what, what happened to this guy, this tough guy, you know, the cynic, the skeptic? And I, I just think underneath it, behind that, that front, there is, like all of us, a heart aching and longing to be known, to be seen to be embraced, to be accepted in our sin and in our brokenness. And Jesus met that. As one Bible commentator said, Nathaniel was captivated forever by the one who read and understood and satisfied his heart. And then Jesus says in verse 50, he says, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these which I like to think of as like, dude, are you kidding me? That was nothing. We're just getting started here. That was like, I'm going to dazzle you with way more than that. you got a lifetime and of being in an ongoing relationship of being dazzled by me. You will see greater things than these. You know, one of the saddest things in our lives is that sometimes we get stuck, don't we? We meet Jesus, we've had an experience, we've been baptized, had some kind of powerful experience, and then we just, it goes kind of dark. Our conversion gets truncated. We're no longer in an ongoing relationship with being dazzled with Jesus. We are, as the book of Revelation says, we lose our first love. The romance is not there anymore. We're not swept off our feet anymore. What Jesus says in verse 51, he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Now, it's really important here. So in the original language, this is one of those places where it like really helps. I'm not a Greek scholar, so I rely on Greek scholars. So, but he starts off talking to Nathaniel. He said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven open. The you is in plural. So Jesus is talking not just to Nathaniel. He's talking to his little church. And he's talking to us. He's talking to the church. He's talking to all of us. And he's saying, you will see heaven opened, or literally, you will see the opened heaven and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Now, it's a very powerful statement, which I have my whole life reading the Bible have just sort of blown by and never really given any gravitas to that statement. So I'm thinking, what does that mean? And so I went back and read this passage that you just heard, this first reading, where one of the great patriarchs of the Jewish people, a man named Jacob, and the background of the story is he's just conned his twin brother 
out of the family inheritance. So just use some, some sneakiness, some deceit. He's conned him out of the family inheritance. He's on a journey. He's going away from home. He's trying to find his new life, trying to find his new identity. And he, he sleeps out in the wilderness under this stone pillow. And as he's sleeping, he has this dream. And in this dream, he, sends, he sees angels going up and down a ladder or steps going up and down to heaven. He sees these angels coming down. And it's a place where he meets the Lord powerfully. He meets the presence of the Lord. And the Lord says to him, Behold, I am with you, and, keep, and I will keep you wherever you go. For I will not leave you until I've done what I've promised you. And then Jacob says, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. How awesome is this place? It's an encounter with the Lord. And what is Jesus saying here? You will see angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Who is the Son of Man? Well, it's Jesus. It's a reference to himself. Jesus is talking about himself. And what's he saying? You'll see angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. What did the angels ascend and descend on? The ladder. Jesus is saying, I'm the ladder. I'm the steps. I'm the one that unites heaven and earth. I'm the one who came down and incarnate and suffered and died for your sins and became a human being. I'm the one who can take you up to a holy God in my person. I'm the latter. That, to me, is dazzling. You will be in a lifelong relationship of this opened heavens. When the heavens are closed, if the heavens are closed, then God can't get through to you. You can't get through to God. So there is no forgiveness. There is no redemption. So we might as well just live in a, just a caustic cancel culture. Just cancel each other. There's no hope for us. Once you fail, you've failed forever, and you're gone, and you're a loser, and there's no coming back. There's no power. There's no provision. But if you live in an open heaven, all of that is possible. And it's yours as a child of God and as a follower of Jesus. You live in an opened heavens. You know, our friends in Nigeria, they, they love using this phrase, the, we live in the opened heavens. And I never really understood that until I, until I looked at this passage. I was talking to a good friend of ours, Archbishop Kawashi. He was telling me this week, he said, you know, Matt, we, we feed 500 children every day. Every day we give them a good meal in northern Nigeria. We have no idea where the food's going to come from. One time we were down to our last bag of rice. We said, we have no food. He turned to his wife, Gloria, and said, we have no food. We have no food for the children tomorrow. What should we do? So they prayed. They cried out to heaven. They live in this open heavens. Archbishop Kawashi said he went to pick one of his Bibles off the shelf. And he opened the Bible, and there in the middle of the Bible was 50,000 naira. I thought, I didn't know there was 50,000 naira in this Bible. 50,000 naira is worth $127. It bought two bags of rice. They fed the children the next day. But then it's like, where are we going to get it the next day? The next day, they wake up in the morning. There's 10 bags of rice sitting outside the door. He said, Matt, we live with this every day. This open heavens, it's not a fable. This is the way we live. God provides. We live with an open heavens. Jesus can still dazzle his people. So... I said that the early church was dazzled by Jesus. I've spent most of my time in that. How did they dazzle the world around them? 
How did they do that in the early church, which, again, was not perfect, and they did not do this perfectly, but they did something that the Roman Empire took notice of. What was it? I think the best way to say it, there was a number of things, but let me focus on one, and I really do believe it was the main thing that surprised and astonished the Roman Empire. Let me tell you what it was not. It was not getting political power. Because that was not an option to them. And it doesn't mean Christians shouldn't, shouldn't be involved in politics in a democracy. I preached two sermons on that. We believe that strongly. We all believe in that strongly. But, but let me just say uh, how they transformed the church, or how they trans- transformed the culture, this tectonic shift in values, was not through political power. How did they do it? What did dazzle the Roman Empire? I think it was primarily this. The way they cared for the most vulnerable members of their society. The way they cared for the sick. The first, you know where the hospital came from? The first hospital in the Western world was founded by a bishop in the Christian church. It was so large that it became kind of like its own city. It reached out to the poorest of the poor. Now, the Romans had their hospitals. They had their medical care, but it was only for the elite. The Christians opened it up for the poor. Let me give you another example. And this one is is one of the most powerful to me. So there's a practice in the Roman world called infant exposure, which was a euphemism for discarding unwanted babies outside the Roman city. Just leave them so they would either die or they would be taken and reared as slaves. Just a a movement of human trafficking, which was entirely legal. One historian I read estimates that 150,000 discarded babies were reared as slaves every year in the Roman Empire. They needed slaves. They needed slaves for their army. They needed slaves to run things. So they would uh, take these 150,000 children a year We even have a letter, a letter that's a historical document. It was written in 1 BC, about one year before Jesus was born. It was a man serving in the Roman army. We know his name was Hilarion. He had a wife named Alice. He writes to her. She's pregnant. She's about ready to give birth. He writes to her, and he seems like, he seems like a decent husband. And he writes to her and he says, if it is a boy, let it be. If it is a girl, cast it out. That was just what they did. They didn't think of that as particularly cruel. They didn't think of that as brutal or barbaric. That's just what you do. Well, with a unified voice, the early church condemned that practice. Said, this is, this is horrible. This is a travesty of human dignity. Little people made in the image of God. And when you come into the church, you do not do that. And they not only condemned it, but they took the exposed infants and took them into their homes and adopted them as sons and daughters. Imagine how powerful that would be in the early church to hear the Apostle Paul's words saying that we're all adopted by God that every one of us has been adopted, and you were left to be raised as a slave, you were discarded, but now you're wanted. You're adopted. 
That dazzled the Roman Empire. So let me say, where do I start? I start simply here. Maybe a good place to start. I've been thinking about, praying about this week. I start with the places and times when I'm not dazzled. I'm bored. I'm lethargic. I'm weary. I'm angry. I'm skeptical. I'm mad at people. I'm mad at people on the right. I'm mad at people on the left. I'm outraged. And it's consuming me. Or I'm distracted by social media. I'm distracted by TV. I'm not dazzled with Jesus. And just say that. Say that to the Lord. Just say, I'm not dazzled with you. You are in the presence of the Lord of dazzlement. The Lord who wants to dazzle you. He will hear that prayer. He will receive that prayer. That's a prayer of repentance. But then ask him, say, Lord, dazzle me again. Renew me again, Lord, in dazzlement. And as, as many of us have learned from Deacon Val and, 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 and St. Ignatius, which you've heard about, at, just maybe at some point in the day, maybe at the end of the day, just ask yourself, Lord, where did you meet me today? Where did you dazzle me today? And, and maybe like Jacob, I just didn't know it. I didn't see it. Where did you dazzle me? Let me hold on to that, Lord. And then ask the Lord, Lord, how can I, in some small way, dazzle my friends, my family, my coworkers, the culture around me? What is my role, my place to dazzle the world again? Again, the greatest threat is not out there. It's in here. And the Lord wants to meet us here. And he has been. And he will continue to do so. Let him dazzle you. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thanks for listening. Our vision at Church of the Resurrection is to equip everyone for transformation. As part of that vision, we love to share dynamic teaching, original music, and stories of transformation. For more of what you heard today, check out the rest of our podcast. To learn more about our ministry, visit churchres.org.